0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. That's always the best place to start. So we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give you a chance to use first 1 John 1, 1.9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace has provided everything for us. Has provided everything we need to carry out the plan that you have for our lives, and it's provided everything we need in our spiritual life to handle any and every situation or circumstance in life. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that is complete and sufficient, and that it tells us about your grace, which is complete and sufficient, and informs us about our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done everything for us. Now, Father, as we study your word and study the doctrines relevant to our spiritual growth tonight. We pray that we'd be challenged, motivated to press on and to use your word as the tool for facing the challenges of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we started a study on the doctrine of prosperity testing related to what Solomon went through and failed in the prosperity testing of his administration. And during his life, he arguably faced more prosperity than just about any other human being. And like the rest of us, he didn't do a whole lot better when it comes to prosperity testing uh, than we do. Prosperity testing is one of the most difficult kinds of testing to uh, pass because we tend to let so many things distract us because the immediate pressure of, of failure, of the pressures, of insecurity, the threats that may come our way, just aren't there. And so we tend to think that we can slide, that we can just uh, glide along in our spiritual life without running any danger to our spiritual life. And this is exactly what happened with with Solomon. So last time I covered the first point with nine uh, sub-points, I believe. Let me go through here. No, I think I had five sub points. And I'm not going to review those subpoints tonight. We're just going to start with the first point, which is in life God takes us through various circumstances which provide us with opportunities to trust Him in life. Those opportunities are tests. And what makes a test a test isn't that it's something difficult, isn't that it's some form of adversity, it isn't that uh, there is a threat to some area of our life. What makes it a test is that we have a choice to make. And how we, wh- whether or not we pass the test depends on the resources we use in the decision-making process and how we handle the circumstance. And that circumstance can either be positive, which is prosperity, or it can be negative, which is adversity. But that's what the test is, and when sometimes we talk about the problem-solving devices, and if we have time, we'll get into a review of that tonight. But in terms of problem, in everyday language, we tend to think of problems as difficulties or hardships or negative circumstances. But in another sense, a problem is any particular challenge that you have to work through, and that can be good or bad. In a more academic sense, when you sit down and work through a math formula, that is a problem coming to a solution to some sort of situation. And so we resolve the situations in life, good or bad, always through the word of God. So God takes us through these circumstances. He's the one who has all the facts. In in, the, in his thinking, he knows every single detail. He's able to handle just the, the infinite number of, of facts, all the data that comes in, and he orchestrates the, the circumstances of our life in such a way that, that we just marvel when we look at what happens and we say, well, that's just exactly what I needed. We're aware of our weaknesses. Sometimes we may not admit that to anybody else, but we go through circumstances that particularly challenge us in our weakest area so that at that point we are forced to deal with the areas where we think we're sufficient from our own sin nature. And so some people go through certain kinds of tests that other people don't go through because they would be able, um, <clears throat> that, that those particular tests they go through, really challenge uh, their ability to trust God, and they have to, uh, that's when they grow the most. So we come to point two. In prosperity, God provides us with an abundance of the details of life and that is that means that your prosperity may not be somebody else's prosperity and prosperity is, should not be understood necessarily in terms of financial prosperity or material prosperity because for each person's different some people just don't care much about material things or about money other people don't care much about family or friends or success everybody's different and so prosperity testing is when God gives us an abundance of the details of life, uh, primarily in the area where it will test us in terms of relying upon God or thinking we can be self-sufficient. So there's a whole range of different details of life. And so here is the beginning of a chart. We can focus on possessions, friends, success, Family, money, recognition or approbation, career, social life, leisure activities, travel, health, just the comforts of life. Any of these can be the area of prosperity testing. And with someone like Solomon, he went through every one of them. He had an abundance in every area. And the issue was, would he still trust God and focus on God with the same level of intensity and dependence as someone who didn't have any of these things and was hanging on with dear life to his relationship with God just to make it through the next day. So it's easy for us to take the details of life, which are simply the the attributes of the creation around us, and to so focus on having these that they become the source of our sense of stability, they become the source of our sense of happiness and meaning and purpose. We get all wrapped up into these things with uh, security, thinking that this is where real meaning and value uh, in life is. We get wrapped up in having uh, the trappings of success and and uh, business success or uh, family, whatever the area may be. That because we have these, then that's where our security lies. And then all of a sudden, something happens and that's gone, and that's a test. And when we have those things, it forms another area of testing. Point number three, in adversity, we're often in desperate situations, failing health, loss of money, loss of a job, loss of friends, loss of family, things we often measure happiness by. And when these are threatened or gone, then we cling to God more consistently to provide us with that stability and happiness we desire. We, we recognize when we have nothing that God is our source of meaning and purpose. But when we have these things, we get distracted and think that we get meaning and value from the possession of these details of life. So, point number four. When these details of life are present, then they provide a different kind of test. And so I was thinking through at least four different ways in which the details of life test us. The first is the test of distraction, the test of distraction. It's interesting that I I see this as a pastor a lot. One test of distraction is having children. People, young couples, often can't wait to have children, start begin, beginning to have a family. And it's interesting, some parents can handle children, some parents can't. And you'll frequently see a couple show up, and then they start having children, they have that first baby, and you don't see them for four years. They can't quite figure out how to get up in the morning, how to get all that stuff in the car, how to, how to take care of all the extra diapers for the baby, and by the time they finally get packed and ready to pull out of the driveway, it's 12 o'clock and they miss church. And it's not till for five or six years that they figure it out. And if they continue to have children, they just never seem to pull it together. And, of course, this is something they wanted for a long time and and uh, just can't quite pull it together. But children can become a distraction. I'm not saying children are wrong. Anything can become a distraction when it keeps us away from this priorities in life that we know the Word of God wants us to have. So it can be possessions. We suddenly get become successful. At different seasons of life, people run into different types of testing. And so you'll often see people who reach a certain level of success when they're in their perhaps mid-30s to uh, late 40s. They begin to have more leisure, a little more leisure time, They begin to have more financial ability, and they're able to take off on the weekend. They're able to go here. They're able to go there. They're able to go spend time in different hobbies and interests. And all of a sudden, there's the conflict between the consistent taking in of the Word of God and leisure. Or it can just be, especially in today's Envi- work environment. It can just be the devotion to work and business and success. And before you know it, they're so consumed with work, with their uh, advancement, with gaining more uh, accreditation, more education, more skills on the weekend that they're just too tired to make it to Bible class. So you have the test of distraction that can come from just any detail of life, can distract us from our dependence upon God. The second test is the test of arrogance. So, and this is it's a subtle form of arrogance. Because we often, God, often in life, God will bless us in the area where we have worked to achieve. And so we go to school, we get an education, go to graduate school, get more education, go work for a company, spend uh, an extra 10 or 20 hours on work so that we can get the advancement, the promotions, and move up the career chain. And then we get there and we think, look what I did. We did do a lot of work, but there's a lot of people out there who do just as much work and never get very far. And there's other people we know who don't do any work, and for whatever reason, they get advanced. So there's not necessarily a one-to-one connection between how hard you work and how much native talent and ability you have and how far you advance in whatever your your career is. So often, once we possess these details, we become a little lazy, we relax, and we start thinking, look what I've achieved. And all of a sudden the focus is no longer on God, but we begin to think that we did something to gain these possessions and we had something to do with getting them. And it's just one more step before we think we're entitled to these things. And this is the arrogance test. It's the entitlement test. We have thinking that we have a right to happiness in terms of the possession of these uh, details of life. And then what happens is God has a way of taking those things away from us, and then suddenly the issue is now, are we going to become angry at God? Why did you take this from me? Or are we going going to relax and say, well, like Job, the Lord gave, the Lord t- take, takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, where we can relax. And like Paul said at the end of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, I know how to... Abound and I know how to do without. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I remember learning a course on that verse when I was a kid thinking, well, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, the context is that Paul has said I can have everything and have the prosperity, or I can have nothing and be in adversity, but neither is going to shake me in my spiritual life. Because I can handle anything, prosperity or adversity, through Christ who strengthens me. And so the focus there is on Jesus Christ in terms of occupation with Christ. So the second test that comes along with the details of life is the test of arrogance. Third test is a test of reliance upon God. It's a dependence test. Once we have all these temporal resources, it's easy to think that now that I have $100,000 or $200,000 in the bank, now that I have a job with a solid company and I have really good, or it seems that I have job security, now that uh, you know I have achieved and finally bought a home and I'm easily able to pay the mortgage, it's easy to think that, that uh, I don't need to depend on God quite as much as I did before. I don't need to listen to two or three hours of doctrine every day while I'm driving around because I just don't need to uh, grasp uh, the hold of the grace of God with the same intensity that I had when, if I didn't hold on to the grace of God, I'd lose everything the next day. So we become satisfied, and we begin to to forget to depend upon God because the immediate pressure and the threats of failure are not present anymore. And then a fourth test that comes along with the uh, test of prosperity is the test of boredom. We reach a level of achievement where perhaps you have more financial resources or you're able to hire Someone to clean the house, someone to take care of the yard, someone to take care of the, the, the car, someone to take care of all these other responsibilities, and now there's a lot of extra time left over. And the old saying, idle hands of the devil's workshop, is, has a lot of truth in it. As we reach a level of uh, boredom, it's easy to try to look for some some other area, some Ill, illegitimate area of happiness to get the thrills and to get the stimulation and the excitement that gives us a sense of vitality in life. So there's the test of, of boredom. We have time on our hands now, we have money on our hands, and it's easily to get involved in various pursuits of happiness that... Uh, are just basically support our sin nature lusts. So all of these emphasize these uh, various tests and problems that we have, uh, distracting us from our spiritual growth. So it's a test of distraction, the test of arrogance, a test of reliance upon God, and the test of boredom. Another element that occurs under point number five. Another element occurs that uh, we think that the pressure's off, we relax, we let down our guard, and we think we're outside of the battle zone. We just don't realize that the enemy is now attacking from another direction, and we let our guard down, and and it's subtle. And I've seen this happen with many people. They reach a level of satisfaction in their spiritual life. They now have the trappings of success, the details of life that they've always wanted, whatever that may be. And they begin to, the intensity of that relationship with God begins to, uh, become less and less. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. But then one day, five or six years later, they wake up and they wonder, You know, what in the world ever happened to that, that real sense of happiness and stability that I, that I once had? It's because they're no longer focused on that, on that relationship with God. And it's, it's subtle. It's a very slow erosion of that spiritual life and spiritual growth. And we forget that the battle has just gone from a more overt attack to a very subtle covert attack. Point number six, few people ever pass the prosperity test. No nation has ever passed the prosperity test, and the United States is not any different. And we can see that, that over the last 50 years, this nation has experienced an unprecedented prosperity. And they have failed all of those tests. They have failed the test of distraction even though uh, church attendance, per se, has not appreciably diminished. What has diminished is the content of Bible doctrine from the pulpit or attendance at churches that really teach the Bible, so that more and more you find that churches simply have a veneer or a facade of Christianity. They talk about Bible study on Wednesday night at 7.30, and yet what happens when they go is that the pastor has sort of a discussion group, and he really hasn't spent much time preparing because he spent most of his time uh, trying to uh, do other things. Uh, No matter what it might be, there's a lot of distractions for a lot of pastors, and there are a lot of denominations that expect their pastors to be involved in community life, political life, whatever it may be, but they're not focused on studying and teaching the Word. So... There is a uh, shift in, a, in American church life in the intensity of their focus on the Bible, and more and more studies that come out uh, indicate this. I don't know if you're you get a chance to ever look at some of these different studies that come out, but they the one one that is interesting is that. Um, the number of, I think it's around 90% of evangelicals don't have a Christian worldview. And the way they measure that is that they ask various questions about what they think about creation and evolution, what they think about certain ethical issues, what they think about salvation, how what they think about grace. And, and they measure this. And so even though people say oh I'm a Christian and I go to church uh at least once a week the fact is that there's no training there's no conversion of their thought from the human viewpoint system of the world around us to a biblical viewpoint and the result is that they 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 just have this this empty facade uh that Makes them feel good because they're involved in a church and they know wonderful people there that think pretty much the same way they do. But there's no real understanding of the Bible and no serious teaching of the Bible. And I've run across this so many times as a pastor. I'll have somebody visit the church and they'll come in and they'll, I have a rule here that, that to the degree that someone expresses their enthusiasm for their first um, Bible class is directly related to the shortness of their stay at the church. <laughs> I've had people come in, and after the first hour, oh, that was so great, I haven't had Bible teaching like that in a long time, or I've never heard Bible teaching like that. And they'll go on and on and on, and then they come back, and then about the third time when nobody's asked them their opinion or whatever it is they're looking for, whatever it is their experience of, quote, Bible study has been, That's not what's happening here, and so then all of a sudden you never see them again. And I've talked to other pastors, other doctrinal pastors, about this, and we all have experienced the same thing. So people that come in and are quietly enthusiastic and don't come running up to me afterwards and say something about how great uh, the teaching is, well, they'll probably last a little bit longer. But people just don't want... Truth anymore they just want they want a, either a, a magic pill they want um, they want to feel good they want to have social connections with people who are somewhat uh, like minded but they don't really want to have an in depth day by day walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and so This comes because their lives are filled with distractions, and they're just too busy. They have too much, or they have succumbed to the arrogance test, and they think that everything they have uh, basically comes from their own hard work. They have failed to rely upon God, and they, they think they're trusting God, but they're really glad they have that 401k plan to take care of their future. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having the 401k plan, but my security is not in my bank account. My security is not in whatever the retirement plan is. My security is not in my paycheck. It can't be. As soon as you place your security in your job, your finances, uh, your retirement plan, as soon as you place your security in your family and your friends that can come to uh, aid you in times of crisis – then you've succumbed to idolatry and you have failed the prosperity test. Or they failed the test of boredom. And we see that in this nation with the high rate of uh, problems with alcohol, with drugs, with pornography, with just, you can, the list can go on and on and on. With entertainment, this is a culture that is consumed with entertainment because basically they don't know how to solve the problems in their life So they would rather anesthetize themselves with the distractions of entertainment and pleasure and drugs or whatever it is than face the realities of life. And this is the failure of our nation. Now, point number seven, when we fail the prosperity test, God frequently brings discipline and judgment through loss into our lives. When we fail the prosperity test, God frequently brings discipline and judgment through loss into our lives in order to refocus our attention. He wants us to realize that we've been dependent upon these things, and now we have to refocus and become dependent upon him. So God frequently will bring discipline and judgment. This is what happens in the life of a nation. We see the pattern in the five uh, stages of discipline that God had for the nation Israel. That as they went through these stages, if they became too prosperous and they no longer relied upon God, then God would take those things away from them in order to get them to become more dependent upon, upon Him. Under point number eight, riches, abundance, material position, possessions, family, children, Friends, social life are not an entitlement. I'll never forget one of the most thought-provoking comments I heard from one of my seminary professors when I was in seminary was that he said, men, if you don't have a view of God's plan for your life and your ministry that entails the idea that success for you is faithfully teaching five people for 40 years in a village in India that nobody ever heard of, then you don't have a proper perspective on God's plan and meaning and purpose in ministry. Because so many people put that focus on success is measured in terms of numbers, size of the church, size of the tape ministry, whatever it may be. And faithfulness in God's plan is determined by faithfulness to God's word and faithfulness in serving him, whether it's with a little or a lot. And I had an opportunity that I think was at the end of my first or second year in seminary, I was taking a class in summer school, and I was sitting next to a guy who, at that time, I thought he was old, but he's probably younger then than I am now. And <clears throat> I had met his daughter over at Dallas Bible College she was friends with some guys i was roommates with and she was indian and he had married her mother when he was a missionary in india and he was just a very quiet man very humble and i found out from a from someone else that he had spent the last 25 years since he had graduated from seminary in a in working in three or four very small villages in rural india and for the, for most of his life, he had lived in basically a mud hut. And I thought, man, that is not the concept most people have when they think of going into ministry, going into pastor, going into business in any way that just doesn't fit our model of success. But that was what God's plan was for, for his particular life. And, and we don't have a sense of entitlement that we should, we have our dreams. We think, oh, this is what I want, and that just feeds various patterns in our sin nature. But we have to recognize that ultimate meaning and purpose in life is dependent upon serving God in whatever capacity that might be. And whether that's, uh, you know, we joke and say, well, it'd be a lot, wouldn't it be nice to uh, have a ministry down on, uh, on Park Avenue in New York? Those people need the gospel just as much as the people down in the ghetto and be more comfortable. But serving the Lord means going anywhere at any time, and God wants us to be at a point where we understand that the details of life are just that. They are just details, and that is an extremely hard lesson to learn as we advance into, into spiritual maturity. So we have to recognize that riches and Abundance, material possessions, money, all of these things are not our entitlement, but they are on loan from God so that we will use them for his honor and his glory. So that everything that we have is given to us. That's not to say we can't enjoy it. That's not to say that we can't uh, have nice things and enjoy uh, luxury items. But it is to say that we have to recognize that there's a responsibility there to use a portion of what God blesses us with for his honor and for his glory, and that is the doctrine of of stewardship is laid out in the Scripture. We have to be a good manager of what God has provided for us because he has provided it in part that we use it for the furtherance of the gospel and to glorify him. So point number nine, once we get our eyes off of God and onto the details of life, we're living on the basis of the sin nature. Every time we're looking to something other than God for meaning, for value, for significance in life, then the result is idolatry. And that is a function of the sin nature. Twice in the scriptures we have a verse Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25, We it feels good. We often pick paths that feel good, feels good, feels comfortable. We have the We have things within our comfort zone that make us feel like we're successful, like we have security. But it often is nothing more than a distraction from God's plan. And point number 10, the more we live on the basis of the sin nature, the more you rely on the sin nature to handle the details of life, then the more you become comfortable with habits, not just physical habits, but thought habits, where our attention isn't on God, it's on the details of life. We get uh, ensconced in these habits. We we you know get our pillows out and our blankets and we build a nest and we burrow down. And we get very comfortable with these habits and that establishes our comfort zone. We've become comfortable with the habits, we become comfortable with the rationalizations. Uh at times when I have done counseling, and one of the hard things to do about with any kind of counseling, is that people have usually by the time they come in for counseling and life's gotten pretty pretty uh calamitous, is what what's happened is they have become so desensitized to their own rationalizations and self-justification that even when you point it out and turn on a spotlight, they can, still can't see it because it gets embedded in our soul. These are some of the bad habits that we develop mentally is to rationalize our our sins, to justify our dependence on the details of life. And this is what the Bible refers to as building uh, calluses on our Soul, Ephesians four seventeen through nineteen talks about this. Ephesians four seventeen through nineteen. Let me see if I have a slide on this. Here we go. Ephesians four seventeen. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer, um, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And the word here for futility is a Greek word, uh, mataiotes which can be translated vanity, futility, emptiness, uh, something that is transitory or meaningless. Mataiotes is the same Greek word that the uh, Jewish rabbis use to translate the Hebrew word for vanity in, um, in Ecclesiastes. When the writer of Ecclesiastes says that, you know, vanity of vanity, all is vanities, this is the same word uh, this Greek word is the word that's used. There's everything is just vain, empty. It's the the Hebrew word has the idea. It's like a uh, just just a puff of air when you uh, are outside in the cold in the winter and you breathe and there's just this vapor and you see your breath for about a half a second. That is how how, how vain, empty uh, life is. The details of life and that's what this word describes is how. Meaningless, empty, and transitory, the details of life are. When we've been in heaven for 10,000 years, the things that consume your thinking on a day-to-day basis are going to seem so irrelevant. But we get so consumed with the here and now and the present that we're distracted from living today in light of eternity. So what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4.17 is contrasting the way unbelieving Gentiles walk versus the way believers in Christ ought to live their life, ought to walk. That's what walking means. It's a metaphor for living the Christian life. But the problem is that as believers, before we we grow and before we're trained, we still follow the old thought patterns, habit patterns, lifestyle patterns that we had before we were saved. Or if we get out of fellowship, the sin nature kicks in. That's the default position And so our life takes on characteristics that aren't any different from an unbeliever's life. So in verse 18, Paul goes on to say, having their understanding darkened. This is the problem that happens in spiritual rebellion is thinking is affected. The word for understanding is the Greek word uh, dianoia, which has to do with the thoughts, the intellect, the thinking faculty of the soul. So Paul says that we aren't to walk as the rest of the Gentiles, as unbelievers walk, in the emptiness or futility or vanity of their thinking, having their their thought life darkened, having become alienated from the life of God. Now that applies directly to an unbeliever. But he's uh, uh, applying it to believers here, is that believers shouldn't live like unbelievers. They're not alienated from the life of God. They've been born again. They're regenerate. They have new life in Christ. They have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. They they can have the Holy Spirit filling them. But rather than uh, choosing to walk by the Spirit, they're walking according to the flesh. So he says, in characteristic of the unbeliever, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and the blindness of their heart. And here the word heart has to do with the the core of the soul, the thinking part of the soul. So notice this. In verse 17, there's the emphasis of the futility of the mind. In verse 18, it's understanding, uh, ignorance, Blindness of the heart, the emphasis is on the, the, the content of the thinking, the, the style and the content of thinking in the uh, unbeliever, and that the believer is not to get distracted and live like the unbeliever with a darkened intellect. That just basically means the lights are off and there's no life at home because they're spiritually dead. Ephesians 4.19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and greediness. So this is the problem with failing the prosperity test. And exactly what happened with Solomon is when Solomon fails the prosperity test... You look at his life, and he's not any different from any of the unbelievers. He's worshiping all of the false gods. He takes on all the trappings of the pagan kings around them, and he even goes a lot further than they do. They might have had 10, 20, 30, maybe even 50 wives, and he had to go, be- go one better. He had uh, 600 wives and 300 concubines. So why in the world would anybody look at him and think that he had... Uh, a relationship with God that made a difference in his life. He's not any different from anyone else. And this is why he wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, because at the end of his life, he comes to a realization that he has just wasted his life in the pursuit of these empty details of life. And if you go through a study of, of uh, Ecclesiastes, he talks about all the different pursuits that he had in order to find happiness and meaning in life, the pursuit of of money, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of accomplishments. All of these characterized Solomon. He set his heart on learning, on knowledge, that this would make him happy. But then he concludes in chapter 1, verse 18, that in much wisdom there is much grief, and in increasing knowledge there is increasing pain so he puts his focus next on pleasure and possessions in in chapter 2 and with all of the pleasure and possessions that he had he comes to the same conclusion that all is vanity so he puts his emphasis on accomplishments on his building program on his architecture on all of the things that he had and again he concludes that all is is vanity And Ecclesiastes 5.10, he concludes, He who loses silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. And so he comes to a couple of interesting conclusions. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says that God has made everything beautiful in its time, and God has put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. That last part means that nobody, no human being, no creature can truly ascertain on his own what God is doing. But God places eternity in man's hearts. There is a desire in man to know God and and, a, and only a relationship with God can satisfy that basic need or desire that is built into man's soul. But what we try to do is cover it up with everything in the world other than recognizing the authority of God so solomon comes to a conclusion in ecclesiastes 12:13 and 14 he says the conclusion when all has been heard is fear god and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for god will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil and what Solomon is pointing out is that ultimately, there is accountability for everyone, believer, unbeliever, whoever it might be. and God is, and the only thing that's going to matter when all is said and done is to fear God and keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12:13. This applies to every person. Happiness can only be found in a relationship with God. Now, as we've gone through the prosperity test, I want to take some time to review the basics on how to survive any kind of testing. This is not something that's new to most of you, but it's good review. I think it's important to go back and review these things periodically simply because we need it. We need to be reminded over and over again that God is faithful and God has supplied everything we need to face every situation in life. And beyond that, every now and then I think, well, I'm not going to go back and go over that. Everybody's heard that enough. They remember that. But in every series that I teach, I try to cover certain basics because you never know who's going to get out there on the Internet and they're going to listen to this series or that series and they won't listen to anything else. And so in some every series, I try to put in uh, good material on the gospel, the plan of salvation, good material on the problem-solving devices, the stress busters, everything, so that whoever manages to come along will hear this. You never know who's out there. So we have a new orientation to dealing with the problems of life, slightly Revised, updated version on the stress busters. So here you are. This is your soul made up of self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience. And the question is, wait a minute, I missed the question, lost the question. The question is, how do you protect your soul from the assaults of the world around you? So we're going to do a brief review of the soul fortress, protecting your soul from the attacks of sin, the cosmic system, and the devil. Let me give you an overview. This is the foundation for the spiritual life. It is the filling of the Holy Spirit. That relationship that we have with God the Holy Spirit is the foundation for everything else that we do in the spiritual life. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no spiritual growth. There is no spiritual life because He's the one who regenerates us. But in terms of the filling of the Holy Spirit, dependence on the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, without that, there is nothing else. So what I'm going to do is give you just, go through this to give you an overview of the diagram and then we'll get into the details. The way to get into the soul fortress, if you missed that, watch it again. The way to get in to the soul fortress is through the drawbridge of confession. When we are initially saved, we are filled with the spirit. But then as soon as we sin, which is two to three seconds later, we're out of fellowship. The only way to recover is to confess our sin. And when we do, then we are back into the soul fortress. But it's not much of a fortress yet, just a foundation, and we have to construct this fortress through the doctrine that is in our soul, learning doctrine and exercising, using it, and that is how things are built. So we have the looked at the first two stress busters, confession, filling of the spirit. The third is the faith rest drill. And the way I'm presenting these in this chart is in their logical progression. So we have the faith rest drill, and then grace orientation. After that, we have doctrinal orientation, and then we develop the personal sense of our eternal destiny. From the personal sense of eternal destiny, we begin to build on these basic skills that we're developing, a personal love for God, and an impersonal love for all mankind. Following that, we focus on Christ. Not that we haven't before, but we begin to master this, keeping our mental focus on Jesus Christ. And then finally, we share the happiness of God. This is the soul fortress. When we are behind the walls of the soul fortress, it protects us. And we use these skills to stay inside the soul fortress. Staying inside the soul fortress is comparable to walking by the Holy Spirit. It's comparable to abiding in Christ. And when we are there, then it is God who protects us. We're in that defensive position that Paul talks about in terms of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, putting on the armor of God. That's just a slightly different metaphor than the one that uh, I'm using here in terms of the soul fortress. But when we sin, what happens is we go outside of the soul fortress, and we're trying to survive on our own, and that makes us vulnerable to the world, the sin nature, and the devil. So we'll start with four basic Summary principles on the Soul Fortress. First of all, the construction of the Soul Fortress takes a lifetime. You never get there. It's never complete in this life. We may get a long way, but none of us ever fully achieves the construction of the Soul Fortress. Second, the construction of the Soul Fortress is piecemeal and dynamic. In other words, what I'm saying is you don't do one and then the next and then the next. You don't start off and say, okay, first of all, I'm going to master the faith rest drill. I've got to get that mastered before I can have grace orientation. I have to have that mastered before I can move on to doctrinal orientation. That's the logical way in which these relate to one another, but that's not how we learn them, and that's not how we grow spiritually. Someone could come into... Uh, Bible class at any particular point, they get saved at any point at any particular point in terms of the teaching of the Word. And the first thing that they may hear and begin to learn anything about is occupation with Christ. Well you can't say, well wait a minute, wait a minute, you know that is an advanced problem solving device i can 't learn anything about occupation with Christ because I 'm just a baby. No, because the elements of occupation with Christ, focusing on Christ, as the author and finisher of our faith, learning to trust in him is learned all along the way. We get elements of that. It's like building a house. A uh, construction uh, uh, engineer may come in and start building the house, lay the foundation, and put the uh, frame up. And the next week, the um, electricians get there before the plumbers do. Well, the electricians go ahead and, and put in the wiring and other things, and then the plumbers come the next week. Next house, plumbers may get there. Uh, first, and then the electricians come in. It, it, life doesn't work in a neat logical order. And we learn bits and pieces of all these different skills all along the way. So the actual construction is piecemeal and dynamic. Third point utilization of the spiritual skills, these problem solving devices, enables us to stay inside the fortress. That's how you stay in fellowship. That's how you continue to walk by the Spirit, is that you face the challenges of life by responding to them using uh, impersonal love for mankind or using grace orientation or using the faith rest drill. When we fail to use those, then we're out of fellowship, operating on the sin nature, and we're vulnerable to damage from sin, the world, and the devil. And fourth, when we fail to utilize the spiritual skills to solve the problems, then we're using arrogant skills to solve the problems. And then we have all of the damage that we do to ourselves as a result of the arrogant skills, self-absorption, self-pity. We focus on all the problems and not God as the solution. And then we begin to become self-indulgent. We give in to all of our uh, whims and weaknesses, thinking that somehow that's going to help things. And we justify it, self-justification. We develop all sorts of very good-sounding rationales to justify our inability to trust God, our fail- reason why we didn't go to Bible class, the reason why we're not doing this or not doing that. Then we have self-deception. Now we are completely deceived as to what is going on, and we're getting further and further divorced from reality in terms of our thinking. And, of course, the more we get divorced from God, we worship ourselves and our own desires, and this is self-deification, and then we just get into more self-absorption. So this just creates a cycle that fragments our soul. Well, let's start a review of these problem-solving devices. The foundation, which is the second problem-solving device, is the filling or walking by means of the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by that? Well, at salvation, every believer is indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit. You can't lose the indwelling, but you can lose the filling. The filling is what's related to the ongoing sanctification ministry of the spiritual life, the spiritual growth-producing ministry, and when we sin, it shuts that down. It's not that the Holy Spirit leaves or the Holy Spirit's no longer involved in our life, but that growth-producing ministry of the Spirit is what is stifled. It's quenched. It's grieved. And it's not until we're back in fellowship that we can go forward. We have to remember, secondly, that whatever is done in the power of the Holy Spirit is termed gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and that has eternal value. At the judgment seat of Christ, it will be revealed, and whatever we've done in the power of the Holy Spirit has eternal value. But whatever is done in the power of the sin nature is wood, hay, and straw, and it has no lasting value. It will be burned up. At the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians three, eleven to fifteen. Now that has lost the content of three slides. I love technology. Okay, what are the verses for walking by the by the Spirit? They are Ephesians five eighteen. Don't be drunk with wine, where it is excess, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. That's the command. The contrast in Ephesians 5.18, it's not about control. How many times I've heard people give sermons about its control. See, if you drink wine, you get drunk, you're controlled by the wine. The wine does these things. And so you're supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Well, when you get drunk... And the alcohol is overriding your volition, and you're no longer thinking. You're no longer uh, make are a responsible decision maker. Your inhibitions are lowered. That if, that control destroys volition. The Holy Spirit doesn't take over your life and replace your volition. Control is not the issue in Ephesians five eighteen. It's a very simple issue of of understanding the historical background. In in the Greek world, there was a well-known god by the name of Dionysius. He was actually borrowed from the area over in Turkey. Uh, He's sometimes called Bacchus. He was the god of wine. And so those who worshipped Dionysius would go up into the groves, the high places outside of town, and they would have, take their wine along with them and the female worshipers were called maenads and they would drink wine and then they would begin to dance and sing and play music until everybody just got all worked up. And then if they were, re- really had a tremendous spiritual experience, then the spirit of the God would enter into them and they would speak in glossolalic utterances ecstatic utterances, they would speak in tongues. Now suddenly a lot of things are making sense to you. And the way to be spiritual was through wine. And in Ephesus, there was a, an emphasis on Dionysian worship as there was in other areas of the Greek world. And so the, there were many who thought that the way to have spirituality and to have this communion with God was, with, with God, was through wine. And so what Paul is saying is don't think that you're spiritual through wine. You become spiritual by the the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a contrast of means, not of control. And the Holy Spirit is the means of spiritual growth because he fills us with something. And if you look at Ephesians 5.18 and 5.19, the results of the filling of the Spirit are that you will uh, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and give thanks uh, in your heart to the Lord. And if you turn over to Colossians 3.16, you have the same results but a different command. The command there is to be uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So you have two different commands. One is to let the word of Christ dwell in you. The other is to be filled by the Holy Spirit. One focuses on the spiritual aspect of what fills you, and the content is what's in the other, the other passage. So the Holy Spirit fills you with the word of God. When we're in fellowship, in rapport with God, walking by the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is, is in a, helping us to learn and retain, and to recall the Word of God. He is the one who makes it understandable to us and stores it in our soul so that it can be recalled for application. So you put Colossians 3.16 together with Ephesians 5.18, and then connect that with Galatians 5.16, Galatians 5.17, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not be able to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And as soon as you stop walking by the Spirit, what happens? The default position is the sin nature. Walking by the Spirit demands concentration and focus on and dependence on the Holy Spirit. But as soon as you stop, it's a passive decision. As soon as you stop depending, then there is an automatic fallback to the default position of the sin nature. And then we carry out the results of the sin nature until you confess your sins and you're back in fellowship again. So that establishes the foundation for the Christian life, which is the filling by the Holy Spirit. Then we come to the next problem-solving device, which is confession of sin. And I'm going to stop here because... I have no content to any of these slides. I have no idea what happened. But I put all the verses and definitions and everything in, and it's all gone. That's happened twice today. I don't know what's going on. But we got through this far. We will take this up after I return from uh, Israel. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by the truth that's here, to be comforted by the fact that you always provide a solution for us, and in grace you've given us everything we need to live the Christian life. Father, we pray that as we go forth from here, we'll be reminded that as we face the tests we have in life, whether adversity or prosperity, that the issue, the real test, is to keep our focus on you, to apply the Word, to walk by the Spirit, and as we do do so, we can handle and face any situation in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.